Hi, everybody, and welcome back on the BlockRocks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking, and today's guest of the show is Frances Coppola. She's a very good economist and a very good author of at least one book I've read that is incredibly good. She's an economist with a very good understanding of the banking and monetary system. Francis, how are you doing? I'm good. It, I'm in the UK and it's nice and sunny here, which is a little unusual because we're more used to rain. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so every time I interview somebody who has a very good understanding of the banking and monetary system, the first question I ask is a very panoramic one. And it's always the same. Who prints money? Well, in modern monetary economies, it, money is mostly created by commercial banks when they lend. So when a bank creates a loan, it creates for itself a new loan asset on its balance sheet. And it also puts an amount of money which to the amount of the loan in the customer's bank account. And that money is newly created. And then the customer can withdraw that money in the form of cash or it can spend it away or transfer it to another account or whatever it wants to do. Um, and then the bank needs funding to enable that transfer to happen. But the money is still increased. The overall money supply is still increased over what was there before. So, um, And so also is the leverage in the system. So as we increase the amount of lending in the system, the banking system leverages up and the money supply increases. The two go hand in hand. And sometimes, as we've seen in the past on occasion, that leverage, is, leverage rises to unsustainable levels and then we have a big crash and people um, pay down their debts or they default on their debts and money gets destroyed when that happens because when you pay off a loan or you default on a loan, the money that was created at the time the loan was made gets destroyed. So the banking system not only creates money, it also destroys it. And it's that destruction of money that can cause very damaging economic recessions and even depressions, as we've seen a few times in the past. Yeah, so I have a first question for you as a follow-up, which is, Francis, last time I remember having a course at university about the monetary system and banking and lending, I seem to remember that my professor told me that banks lend out deposits. Can you please explain why that's not the case mechanically speaking? <laughs> if you actually look at it from a pure macroeconomics perspective, we have an identifier that says that savings equals investment. Um, it's an identity. It can be read in either direction. It, you can say equally say investment equals savings. It's the same thing. And so we have a precedence follow, uh, problem. Which comes first? It's like the chicken and the egg. So when I describe banks creating money when they lend and the customers then paying that money away, that money, when it goes into somebody else's bank account, the person, the bank account of the person they've bought their house from or their car from or whatever it is they've bought, um, that money becomes the savings of those people. They, they, they may spend some or all of it, but for that period of time, it becomes the savings of those people. So um, in our economy, in our modern monetary economy, broadly speaking, let debt and savings are broadly equal. So you can view it as 
um, loans equaling deposit, banks lend out deposits. But it, it, it isn't actually how it works. How it actually works is that banks create deposits, the customers pay them away, and then other customers deposit those into another bank or even into the same bank. Um, that's how it works. It's like a, almost like a circular flow. It's one of these kind of circular flows where you, it, depending on where you start, um, you form a particular view of how it works, but that may not actually be how it works if you go right back to the start and say, how did we, how did we get to this? Just thinking out loud with you, Francis, because I do agree with this theory of banking. Actually, there's not much to agree with. It's empirically <laughs> how it works. But let's say for the sake of explaining how lending works a bit further, let's try and make an exercise together. Let's think of setting up a bank. Francis. So let's say we set up a mm -hmm. bank, we start from scratch. How would it work? What's needed for a bank to have basically to be able to pursue lending activities? Can you walk us through the, the process of setting up a bank and how it operates? Well, really, in order to be able to lend, a bank needs to needs first and foremost, needs credibility. Um, because although it can it might be able to lend on, on paper. To somebody, it's got to be able to provide the money for that person, the person to take away with them, and that person's got to be able to use that money somewhere else. So, and it does that actually in the first instance by having equity, by having um, some kind of um, shareholders' fund, something underneath it that backstops everything. Bank capital, we call it. And it's um, shareholders' funds, it's retained earnings, it's maybe some forms of debt that can be converted into equity. And that underpins everything for banking. A bank that doesn't have equity won't survive long because it actually doesn't have sufficient credibility, sufficient confidence, if you like, to be able to lend. And one of the things that happens when banks, um, or it's even things like building societies, actually run out of of, of capital, don't have enough capital, is they have to stop lending because they can't. Um, command sufficient credibility um, to be able to um, obtain the money, they, the funds they need to settle lending. So we all start from capital. So a bank that is set up with capital and it has enough credibility is able to lend out as long as there are willing borrowers. Of course, it cannot slosh mm. credit over the throat of, of anybody unless there is a willing borrower, obviously, and a credit worthy borrower. Um, what about reserves? Because the other thing we hear is that um, if banks don't have reserves, or how, how does that go? Banks multiply reserves, take deposits, oh. park some at the central bank, and then a, a ratio of that is multiplied into loans. What is the role that the reserves actually play into the lending framework? It used to be back in the old days when we were, you know, like a century ago when everybody was using physical currency, using notes and coins, that a bank that didn't have notes and coins readily available to settle lending actually couldn't lend, right? Because it had to provide these notes and coins and it didn't have them. Um, and so um, you, they would hold a certain amount in reserve. And their principal source of where of the notes and coins that they would hold in reserve would be the deposits that people were putting in. So they would hold a proportion of the deposits that people put in, keep those in reserve um, to enable them to settle payments. This is all about payments. Um, and I think the where we, where kind of theories of lending kind of go wrong is in missing out that important the importance of payments. You can make a loan on paper in a ledger, 
Um, whether you do that with by typing something into your computer or writing it into a dusty old ledger with a quill pen is neither here nor there. You can make the ledger entries that say, I've advanced this person this much money. Um, but unless you actually can physically provide that person with the money that they can spend, you haven't been able to settle that loan and it's not much use to anybody. So the loan exists on paper, but it doesn't exist in reality, if you see what I mean. And so in the olden days, banks used to have, have to have these reserves because otherwise they could not um, settle lending. And perhaps even more importantly, any, any customers that had deposited funds with them, if they hadn't got those reserves, got enough reserves, they couldn't reserve, withdraw even the deposits that they had put in, never mind lending. Um, and so reserves are all about payments, all about enabling people to withdraw their funds, whether those funds have been funds that they've put into the bank themselves or funds that, that have been advanced to them in the form of lending doesn't matter. It's all about payments. So the way we do it now is a little bit different because um, in, really in the last 50 years, we've moved much more to an electronic money paradigm and one in which banks can obtain funding for settlement very much more quickly and easily than they could in the past. In many cases, they can do it intraday, you know, so they can make a loan and settle it that same day. Um, and they may or may not have on hand the reserves they need to settle it, but they can borrow them. They can go out into the markets and borrow, borrow some reserves, or that as a last resort, they can get them from the central bank. And it's a very different way of thinking about things. Everything's much faster, much more instant, much more instantaneous. And, um, money is much more readily available to banks than it was in the old days when the only way to get, could get reserves was either, either somebody came along with, a te with, 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 with some notes and coins to deposit or they sent a, a horse and cart off to another bank somewhere else to borrow some money, to borrow, get some off them. You know, it, it, it's all much faster. Yeah. And so that's what we're working with now is one in which creditworthy banks can pretty much work without reserves on hand because they can always go and get them when they're yep. needed. And so we don't have the kind of deposit multiplier that we had in the past where you kept a proportion of your deposits on hand for lending and you lent it on hand in case somebody wanted to withdraw their deposits and you lent out the rest. Um, it doesn't kind of work like that now. Um, it's questionable whether it ever did work quite like that anyway, but it certainly doesn't work like that now. Now, banks are pretty much operating on, on well, in theory, zero reserves, but there's a complication here and the complication is QE. Because on the one hand, banks can work on zero reserves. Most countries in the world now don't have reserve requirements. Even the Federal Reserve, which famously had a 10% reserve requirement, it's the one that features in every economic textbook in the world, um, actually abolished it in March 2020. Yeah. And it did so for two reasons. The first is QE. One of the effects of QE is to vastly increase the amount of reserves bank reserves in the system. Now, if I, I digress a little bit to talk about what electronic bank reserves are, because they're a little different from the money that you and I use every day to you know, buy our coffee and pay for our shopping and so forth. These are like um, money that is only used between banks. It's used for settlement. It's the tokens, if you like, that the banks use for settlement between themselves. And by agreement with the central bank, um, those are tokens are exchangeable at par for the money that you and I use all the time. And they sit, reserves sit in deposit accounts at the central bank. Right. So if you like, banks have current accounts or checking accounts for our United States friends um, at the central bank. Um, 
And when banks make payments to each other, the central bank moves reserves from one bank to another. That's how it works. It's literally as simple as that. Yeah. Now, Francis, because you start talking about QE, I want to recap yeah. for a second what we um, established about the commercial banking sector. So we established that in order to start lending, a bank needs credibility and capital, that the bank does not lend out deposits, but well, mechanically what it does is it lends out money and then the entire banking system acquires more deposits. So the entire system gets leveraged both on the asset side and on the liability side. Yeah. Every time a new loan is created, the opposite happens every time a loan is paid back or destroyed, right? So, okay. And then we said that a bank has other constraints when it comes to lending, which is credit, you know, credit worthiness of the borrower, capital, credibility, etc. And then we also said that banks need reserves to settle against each other. They need it arguably more when uh, the, um, the money that we used was much more cash-like than bank deposits-like, so electronic money, basically. Nowadays, they can work with less reserves than they used to work in the past. Then you started talking about QE, and QE obviously increases reserves. So we're talking about basically two different forms of money, the one that we use and the one that banks use, right? Now, I have one question, because one of the main criticisms that I get from this theory that I uh, basically also describe in a very similar fashion is, yes, Alf, but reserves can be turned into real economy money. Every time, uh, you know, a bank can just turn a reserve into cash. They can just ask the Federal Reserve to deliver a truckload of bills into their vaults rather than themselves having digital bank reserves parked at the Federal Reserve, as you described. So they can just turn that into physical cash that we can use at any point in time. So reserves can be turned into real economy money straight away. What's your answer to this point? Well, that's actually correct. I mean, reserves can indeed be converted for physical notes and coins. Um, but they are there are um, banks wouldn't kind of want to do that because they've got to physically store these things you know the quantity of bank reserves in circulation is much much larger than the amount of of notes and coins there have ever been in circulation um so a the fed would have to print a lot more i mean would have to cre create an awful lot more notes notes and coins and b banks would have to have far more in the way of storage space and also the private sector would have to want to use cash and the fact is the private sector broadly speaking doesn't want to use cash and use of cash has been declining so we literally are not in the kind of world where people usually withdraw loans in the form of cash or even their own deposits in the form of cash and if they do what they do is they go straight to the bank down the road and they put it back in again um we are constantly you know <laughs> if you go withdraw some money from your from the atm to pay for your shopping in the supermarket the supermarket will collect up your cash and go and deposit back in the bank and yes. um, we are not a cash-based economy anymore at least not in developed countries and in a good and not in a good many developing countries either there are countries in the world that still operate mostly on cash um but it's surprising but the number is diminishing and there's a big push actually from um, governments in developing countries to move people away from relying on cash, not least because cash for ordinary people is actually quite unsafe. You don't want to be holding large amounts of cash. It's a magnet for thieves. And, you know, if your house burns down, it goes up in flames and things like that. So actually want to move, they actually want to move people into safer ways yeah. of holding money, which broadly speaking does mean in bank accounts. 
Francis, and not only that, I would also, I agree with all you said, and then I want to put up an additional point here. The money the private sector uses nowadays is 97% bank deposits and a small percentage is cash, as you correctly described. But let's assume there is 100 of private sector money in circulation. And let's assume that all of a sudden, from 97 bank deposits, everybody decided that they want to have much more cash at hand, right? So they would go and try to use more cash. Yes, banks would have to actually settle against this ATM withdrawal through reserves being turned into banknotes, but... People are forgetting one side of the equation is that if I have 100 on my bank deposit and I want to have instead 20 in cash today, my bank deposit will actually go down to 80 and my cash stack will go up to 20, which basically means the amount of money, private sector money in the system hasn't changed. It's just the form that has changed from a bank deposit to cash, which means that, yes, I'm going to force banks to basically service this cash deposit via reserves transformed into bills, but it's not like... If tomorrow everybody uses cash, then all of a sudden the Federal Reserve has created money. The money that we can use is actually bank deposits or cash, and the absolute sum of this money doesn't change. It remains 100 in my example, whether you have a bank deposit or you, or you prefer to use cash. So there is this, I think, this um, um, willingness from people to make sure that they can still say that central banks print spendable money for the private sector. Well, I think you have clearly defined that that's not the case and that reserves that get printed have a use case, but that's within financial intermediaries, not for the private sector. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if we look at what central banks do when they do QE or even what we call open market operations, when they put liquidity into markets, like the Bank of England did last week, for example, it wasn't technically a QE operation, it was what we call an open market operation, where the central bank intervenes directly in the market, in this case, to purchase long dated gilts, um, to, to put cash into the market, cash money into the market. It's not cash, it's electronic money into the markets to um, if we actually look at that, um, it, it, in, in many respects, they're simply exchanging one form of money for another. So in this case, they bought gilts, they put in um, uh, reserves in this case, or, 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 or bank deposits, it's intermediated through banks, just exchanged one form of liquid, one, one form of asset for another. They've, they've, yeah. And QE is much like that. That um, although we think it's often called printing money, it rather depends on your definition of money. What QE usually does in most forms, it's large scale asset purchases is what it's more often known as, is, is central banks going out into the market and buying assets, including quite a lot of liquid assets such as treasury bills, um, and paying for them with newly created reserves which intermediated intermediated through banks and the banks create new deposits um which adds up to more more money in circulation narrowly defined money what we call m1 narrowly defined in 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 circulation in the economy but fewer of these liquid or sometimes less liquid assets in the economy. Arguably, you've simply exchanged one type of financial asset for another. You've improved the liquidity in the economy. You haven't in any way changed the size, really, of what's going on. Correct. I didn't... Yeah, because people have this tendency of wanting to see um, any monetary operation as immediately um, nominal activity inflationary. So let's say growth or real growth or inflation boosters. But as you said, 
the total amount of spendable money for the private sector hasn't changed in that case. It's the composition which has changed, which is pretty important for asset prices, not necessarily for nominal economic activity in the first place. I have a question. We have left a pretty big actor outside of the scope in this short interview, which is the government. So what happens when the government actually um, embraces fiscal spending? So let's say net spending that is not matched by taxes, a deficit, basically. What happens? Mm -hmm. Is that money printing or not? For, to my, for my money, that is much more like money printing than anything QE is. Yeah. Because what the government is doing then, let's take two scenarios. One is the one where um, the government spends, but then immediately, or even before that, funds that spending by issuing debts. And the second is the case where it doesn't do that and it effectively runs an overdraft at the central bank. Right? Those two things are functionally equivalent. It's just a question of who is holding, who is, who is holding it. Right. So in the first instance, which is how most governments operate, they will um, government spending will be funded either ex ante or ex post, usually ex ante. Sometimes there's a little bit of wiggle room on that, as there is, you know, the Bank of England using its ways and means overdrafts. Bank of Canada operates a bit like that as well. Um, generally speaking, they're issuing debts to the private sector and spending into the economy. Now, that's new debts and new money. It's leveraging up again. So you've leveraged up your government and you've increased the amount of money in circulation. And there's no difference really functionally between that and the scenario where you basically leveraged up the bank, leveraged up your central bank in order to fund government spending. However, you look at it, it is new money in circulation or new, new purchasing power more accurately in the economy. Yes, I would say there is maybe one case, Francis, but I want to pick your brain. Um, it, I mean, who purchases... Um, the treasury or the government bond issue actually might change a little bit the equation because if we think that the government is cutting taxes, let's say it's doing some unfunded deficit spending, okay? So it's cutting taxes and we have more bank deposits at disposal in the private sector. So, right, they, they just basically let us pay less taxes, which increases the amount of net assets, net wealth that we own as the private sector in aggregate. They fund that by issuing bonds. So if uh, banks are buying those bonds, then that will be pretty much a wash for, for the private, sorry, that would be pretty much a wash for the financial sector, but it would add money to us, to the, to the, to the private sector. What if we are called to buy treasuries because nobody's buying them within pension funds, banks, etc.? That would probably mean that we need to use the bank deposits that the private sector, that the, the government just increased for us actually to finance the government in the first place. Am I correct? Yes, it's entirely circular. And in fact, this is, I think, the fallacy that underlies the um, the strategy being pursued by the British government at the moment, the idea that you can give unfunded tax cuts and pay for them with debt, which you sell to the private sector, because their tax cuts broadly benefit those at the upper end of the income distribution. Those are also the people most likely to end up buying the debt. So overall, it, it, it doesn't make a great deal of difference to them. And those are people who... The further up the income distribution you go, the less likely they are to spend that money anyway, and the more likely they are to buy the debt because it's more money than they need to use right now, so they're going to save it. And for a lot of people, government debt is a key savings product one way or another. So they're going to spend that money on buying the debt that they've just been given the tax 
tax money to pay for. They're just exchanging a new bank deposit for something that is a safer version of a bank deposit, which is a government bond. If one can argue above a certain threshold, it's actually a government liability rather than a commercial bank liability, which in the mm. first place might be considered safer by an investor, and it has a coupon attached to it. But from from a, an, a, a quantity of money perspective, that would be a wash from that from that point of view. I, I agree with you. But now, this has been an interesting walkthrough because basically we said that commercial banks and the government, via leveraging their balance sheet, to make it very simple, uh, in, under certain conditions for the government and basically always uh, for a commercial bank, they actually increase the money that we use. So they literally print money for the private sector. Yeah. We have also said that central banks don't do that. And we have also said that banks don't lend reserves. So we don't care how many reserves there are in the banking system. A commercial bank decides to lend based on anything else we have discussed in this interview. So Francis, have we just said that mainstream theory of how money is understood is just wrong or? <laughs> we kind of have, haven't we? I mean, we've just turned the whole thing on its head. But I think I can kind of see how mainstream theory ended up where it did. Um, because I think many of the models, if you look at some of the old models, I mean, even the famous one that's doing around at the moment is the Diamond and Dibvig model of, of banking, which is not, not like any banking system I've ever seen in the world. I mean, no bank in the world can call its loans a par. It, it doesn't happen. Um, you know, so they make some assumptions in their models that make the models work, but that aren't necessarily how the thing works in reality, because actually in reality, things are a lot more complicated than that. Um, but um, you can kind of see how they ended up doing that, and not just to make their models more tractable, but also because of what I said about the change in the way in which the financial system works from a century ago to where we are now. Um, but that's not to say that we didn't have um, leveraging up banks creating money into in the economy at that time too we did and so i think the models were wrong even then i can just see how they ended up assuming that they worked in the way they do but we know i mean if you i've been looking recently at the 1907 panic and they were leveraging up balance sheets and creating money in in, in the economy then yeah. and it all ended up sort of falling apart rather dramatically um much the same way as it did in 2008 Yes. Um, the, the switch to electronic uh, money in that respect makes no difference at all. I agree with you. Francis, I thank you from my side at least, and I hope listeners have enjoyed as well this walk through through basically the, system, the monetary system um, overall. You have been, um, you have wrote a very good book that I've read about that in the past. Um, I would like to give you the chance to tell listeners if they're interested to know more about your work, where can they find it? Well, I wrote a book called The Case for People's QE, which basically argues that we don't do QE very efficiently, really, and it would be far better to improve consumption spending in the real economy and investment spending rather than um, putting money into rather than swapping assets assets for, for reserves in, in the financial markets. I think it would be far more effective. Um, interestingly, since I wrote that book, um, central banks and governments between them have more or less, more or less done exactly what I said. Um, and I said in the book that it would be inflationary, and indeed it is. Yes. So in that respect, and the question now is how do you land your helicopter? Um, and that's actually something I want to write. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I'm writing a book called The Absolute Essentials of Banking because there are not enough people out there who understand how banks actually work. And I think this is so fundamental 
that um, I think this is needed. I am looking forward for that book to come out. I'm going to devour it as I did for the first <laughs> one. It's uh, it's nice to have uh, somebody who has worked for a bank being into the um, inner circles, basically, of investigating how lending works um, and actually is able to have uh, that communication style you have and that explanatory power uh, to put it all in a book. So looking forward to that, Francis, and thanks for being here on BlockWorks to have this interview with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has.